Well, I've been waiting to say this for the past two months, but take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of John. (gasps) Ah, yes. I feel so much more at home when we're in our study, whatever that is. That book study we're going through typically is what uh, drives us here at Lakeside, and sometimes I get off track and get uh, off on these little tangents and rabbit trails, and uh, hopefully they're all helpful because it's all God's Word, amen? But uh, it's always good to be back uh, where we're kind of plowing through the the, the text of Scripture. And so we're here in John chapter 4, and uh, for those of you who may be uh, just joining us here at Lakeside, in the last few weeks we started studying this great gospel back in the fall in September, and uh, we've been having a great time, and we've reached um, John chapter 4, verse 43, and that's where I'll begin reading this morning, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity and privilege it is to get back into this um, epic gospel, the story of the good news of your son's sinless life and sin-bearing death. And Lord, as we look for the first time at really the first healing that Jesus performed in this gospel, Lord, I pray you would illuminate our minds to understand this story and what was going on here, and that you would also grant us grace to apply it to our lives, Lord, that our faith would grow and develop and progress even this morning as we go through this story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you're all familiar with the expression foxhole conversion or foxhole faith. It's a wartime term that's used to describe when men who have never had anything to do with God or, or religion suddenly get religion, right? They find themselves in a foxhole with bullets flying uh, around their head, past their head, and bombs exploding all around them. And in that moment of desperation, they cry out to God to save them. And they may pray something like, God, if you get me out of this situation alive, I'll turn my life around and I'll serve you the rest of my life. This kind of 
Crisis commitment, however, rarely ever lasts beyond the time the person is rescued from the foxhole. Once they're out of danger, they never follow through on the promises that they made to God, and God gets left out of their life again until they face another crisis. I think whenever we all feel like our lives are falling apart, the natural tendency for us is to do what? To cry out to God in desperation to intervene on our behalf. But the faith that we express to God in those times is often superficial and short-lived because it's motivated by something overwhelmingly physical or emotional rather than our overwhelming spiritual need, which often lies beneath the surface. Our faith is based more on what God can do for us rather than on what on who God is. God is simply a miracle worker for us. Somebody to get, out, get us out of a tight jam. So I think at times God does bring us into crisis situations. He puts us in crisis situations in our lives to grow and develop and mature our faith in Him so it isn't just this superficial, short-lived faith. C.H. Spurgeon mentioned uh, in one of his commentaries that John Bunyan was in one of these tight spots in his life, and this is how Bunyan responded. He said, quote, I was driven to such straits that I must of necessity go to Jesus, and if he had met me with a drawn sword in his hand, I would sooner have thrown myself upon the edge of his sword than have gone away from him, for I knew him to be my last hope. And I think that must have been the attitude of the nobleman in this passage. When his son got sick, he undoubtedly used all of his resources as most likely a very wealthy man to help his son get well, but he only got worse. All his money and power couldn't restore his son to health, and if he didn't get help soon, his son was going to die. And so in a last-ditch effort to save his son, he trekked some 20 miles from his home in Capernaum to Canaan because he had heard that there was a man named Jesus there who had the power to perform miracles. And so Jesus was this guy's last hope for his son. But like most of us, when we're in a desperate situation, all he was desired or all he desired was to be saved from the situation that he was in. And yet Jesus desired so much more. He not only wanted to save this guy's son from his sickness, but more importantly, he wanted to save this guy and his entire family from their sins. He wanted his, his foxhole faith to grow into true saving faith. And so we're going to watch this transformation take place in these verses, and this is the second sign that John included in his gospel, the healing of the nobleman's son, uh, and it really points to the nature of true faith. Now, when John said in verse 54, this is again, is, is again a second sign Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee, he was not saying this was only the second miracle that Jesus performed up to this point in his public ministry. It was uh, simply the second sign or second miracle that he performed in Galilee. 
Jesus had already performed numerous signs and, and wonders and miracles during his first Passover celebration in Jerusalem. We know that from chapter 2, verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed his name, observing his signs which he was doing. And according to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're looking at the life of Christ from the same vantage point, the same perspective. Um, Jesus performed many miracles that served as signs that he truly was God in a human body. Matthew recorded 21 miracles, Mark recorded 20, Luke recorded, Luke recorded 21. John, on the other hand, was very selective in the miracles that he included in his record of Jesus' public ministry. And so in chapters 2 through 12 of the Gospel of John, John strung together a series of seven signs. That's all he needed was seven. He picked the best seven that in his mind most clearly proved the deity of Jesus Christ and would most likely produce in his, or would, would most likely produce faith in his life and death leading to eternal life. We know that is the whole point of the gospel. Just to remind you, because we've been out of it for some time now, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, this is the theme of his gospel. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I mean, there was more than I could ever tell you about, he says. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is the whole reason why John wrote this gospel. And so you say, what are these seven signs? Well, the first one was, of course, turning water into wine. The second was this one, healing the nobleman's son. We're going to see in the next chapter how he healed the paralytic. In chapter 6, we're going to see how he fed the 5,000 or the multitude, how he also walked on water and stilled the storm. Chapter 9, he restores the sight to a man born blind. And then in this whole, um, this, all these signs crescendo or climax in, in him raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And so we have these signs to look forward to. But in this text, John recorded how Jesus returned to Cana, which was the scene of his first sign where he turned water into wine in order to perform a second sign. But before we look at that, at this second sign, the healing of the nobleman's son, let's take a look at the context again. Go back to verse 39. Where have we been? Where are we coming from? Where is Jesus coming from? He says again, again, verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. Again, chapter 4, the first part of chapter 4, John recorded uh, the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, that he, rather than going around Samaria, right, from Judea to Galilee, which most of the Jews went around Samaria because they didn't want to go through that that tainted, um, uh, polluted land of the half-breed Samaritans. But it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, the reason why he had to go through Samaria is because he had an appointment, a divine appointment with this woman at the well who had been married five times and was shacking up with another guy, right? And she needed Jesus. And so he had this interaction with her, and of course she placed her faith in him, and she ran back to her village, her city uh, there, and uh, told all the, the, the people there uh, who most likely despised her uh, and probably didn't give her the time of day, but they listened to this testimony. Her testimony was so amazing that they all came out to see Jesus at the well. 
Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So, so he stayed there in that city for two days, and it says, many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed, don't miss this phrase, critical to the gospel of John, the Savior of the what? World. And so here is the, the climax of the story of the, the woman at the well, this, this glorious declaration that Jesus is the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the Jews, but also the Gentiles, right? And even the half-breeds, right? The Samaritans. And so we move on from the account of the woman at the well and her faith and really, this next section, I think, anticipated the coming rejection of Jesus by his own people, the Jews. Here he's contrasting the woman at the well, the Samaritan, this half-breed, uh, and her great faith in Christ, and this whole city who demonstrated their faith in Christ. But then we're going to see, coming up here, how the Jews rejected their own Savior. And we know that was going to happen, John foreshadowed that in John chapter 1 in his prelude where he kind of gave an overview of what we were going to see in his gospel. It says in John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name. And so we're seeing an example here uh, of those that, that did receive him and those that did not receive him. And in chapters 5 through 12, this next chapter, we're going to get into, Lord willing, next week, chapter 5 all the way to chapter 12, that whole section is all about the Jews opposing Christ. And John is going to illustrate for us how Jewish opposition to Jesus increased to the point where he retreated to the upper room. In John chapter 13, to have a private discourse with his disciples. So he, he just pulled out of the public arena because it was getting too hostile. And he spent the remaining part of his life and ministry with his disciples. Notice verse 43 here in John 4. After the two days, the two days that he spent in Samaria, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. John here was providing a footnote regarding the statement that Jesus made during a visit to his hometown of Nazareth, which occurred after this. You can see this in Matthew 13, Mark chapter 6, and particularly Luke chapter 4. Remember when Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth, um, he, he uh, opened the scriptures and he read a prophecy, an Old Testament prophecy, and said, this, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. In other words, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, are you kidding me? This is Joseph's son. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And what did they end up doing? They tried to push him off the cliff, right? And kill him. Because he was crazy. Well, this principle of a prophet having no honor in his own country, in his own homeland, in his own household, is um, a principle that also applies to his followers. I know some of you probably know this to be true. You've experienced this in, in your life, right? As you've sought to witness to maybe your parents or your 
children or your brother or your sister, uh, your, your relatives, um, they've not particularly appreciated, right, your evangelism, your attempts to win them to Christ because you're just, oh, that's just my daughter, that's just my son, that's just my dad, that's just my mom, that's just my brother, that's just my sister, right? And so what do we do in those situations? Well, we pray, right? We, we don't stop. We don't stop trying to evangelize our family, our close friends. But I think we also should pray that God would bring other people into their lives, right? Who could share the gospel along with us. In other words, God doesn't need us, right, to win our family to Christ. He could use anyone else he wanted to, any other believer that he wanted to. And that doesn't mean we should just kick back and say, well, I'm, I'm done, you know, I'm going to let somebody else take care of this. No, we continue to pray and engage our family in conversation, but we, I think we definitely should be praying that God would providentially orchestrate our unbelieving family members' lives to cross paths with other believers who maybe would have more honor, right? And they might listen to them more because they're not family members. I think family members tend to write us off, right, and blow us off because of who we are. Well, moving on here in verse 44, verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So this is important that that, uh, we realize that some of these people that he's going to interact with here in this next section are people that he's already met or have already at least been exposed to him and his ministry, particularly his, his miracles. Uh, turn back to John chapter 2. We already looked here briefly this morning, but John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So John's referencing, hey, these are these people. Okay, Some of these people were at the feast were from Galilee. But notice, verse 24, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here's Jesus performing miracles during the the, the Passover in Jerusalem, and it led many to profess their faith in him. In other words, they believed in Jesus, they believed in Jesus, But it's very ironic and even shocking in verse 24 that John says, but Jesus didn't believe in them. (laughs) They believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. Say, what's up with that? Well, he knew their faith was superficial because it was merely based on sensational miracles they had seen him perform, but it was not on his sinless life and sin-bearing death. They had professed faith in him, but they were not truly committed to him. They were just caught up in the emotion and the excitement of the moment. And so were these Galileans. These Galileans were a part of that number. And so Jesus' second sign that he was about to perform was intended to help them move beyond their superficial faith based only on the miracles that he did to genuine saving faith based on who he was, the Christ, the Son of God. And so in this passage, in verses 46 through 54 now, John, we're going to see how John recorded the progression of faith in the noblemen who came to Jesus seeking uh, the deliverance of his son or the healing of his son to show us 
three stages or levels of faith that all of us must progress through in order to be saved from our sin. So we're going to see three stages or levels of faith that all of us must progress through in order to be saved from our sin. Because at the start, as we're going to see, the nobleman appealed to Jesus as a miracle worker who could save his son. But during this, but along the way, his faith grew, and in the end, he embraced Jesus as the Messiah who could save him and his family from their sins. And so let's look at these three levels of faith. There's level one faith. We could call this level one faith. It's just simply based on Jesus' miracles. There's level two faith based on Jesus' words. And then there's level three faith, which is based on Jesus, period. Let's look, on, look at these, these three levels or stages of faith that we must progress through. Number one is level one faith based on Jesus' miracles, verse 46. Therefore he came again to Canaan of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. This royal official, literally the king's man, was undoubtedly um, employed by King Herod. He was a government official. Uh, may have been, he may have been one of Herod's trusted officers. But it says his son was sick and verse 47 says that he was, he was uh, so sick that he was about to die. He was sick to the point of death. He was lying on his deathbed, and the doctors apparently had given him no hope of recovery. And it says when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, verse 27, he went to him. In fact, this, this man may have been in Jerusalem. Uh, during the Passover and witnessed uh, some of Jesus' miracles, or maybe he had just heard the news had traveled of this miracle worker named Jesus. And so he heard that he'd come to Cana, the same place where he had turned water into wine. He had done another miracle. And so, so maybe if he could get there, right, to this place, maybe it was the place, maybe it was the guy, or maybe a combination of both. He wasn't sure. All he knew was he needed to get to Jesus. And so he, he came to Jesus And it says in verse 47, he was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. The imperfect tense there in the original language, when it says imploring him, means that, that, that he was continually imploring him. In other words, he kept begging Jesus over and over again to come to his home and heal his son. Now, let's take a moment to analyze this guy's initial faith, which was deficient in a number of ways, all right? Number one, he thought Jesus had to be there in person to heal his son, right? He said, hey, you need to come. Would you come, right, to Capernaum to heal my son? He didn't know Jesus could just speak the word and it'd be done, right? He didn't know that yet. Secondly, he thought Jesus had to get there before his son died, or it would be too late. Verse 49, he says, the royal, the royal officials said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. The time was of the essence here. Uh, didn't, didn't have the faith at the time to believe that Jesus could raise him, his son from the dead, right? He could do the same thing to his son that he was going to do with Lazarus, right? Who Mary and Martha had said, Jesus, come quickly before our son dies. And Jesus waited a few days. Until he died. And Mary and Martha were heartbroken. Thought it was too late. 
But they found out that Jesus could raise the dead. Thirdly, this guy thought that Jesus needed his help in handling the situation. Okay, this is, a, this is I think, a, typical of us, right? Instead of just coming and presenting the problem to him and letting him handle it his way, he came and said, hey, Jesus, this is what's going on. This is what you need to do. Right? So how are you doing with your faith, right? Do you, do you tend to come to, to God and say, okay, God, this is the situation. This is what you need to do. Or say, God, this is the situation. You need to fix this. However you can, however you want. But would you please intervene, right? Well, notice Jesus' response. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And, and you get the, the sense that he's, he's frustrated here, if you will. Not, not sinfully, obviously, right? He's exasperated. He's, he's, he's grieved by this one more request for a sign, a, a miracle. And again, I don't think Jesus was rebuking the nobleman. You're saying, whoa, dude, that's kind of harsh. Here's this guy, he's got his son on the deathbed, and Jesus kind of responds this way. That doesn't seem too kind and just, doesn't seem very Christ-like, right? Um, well, I don't think that Jesus was, was, was dressing down this nobleman as much as he was simply using the nobleman's request to make a point to the crowds that were clamoring to see him. And so I don't think this was so much about the man, it was about the crowds. And so Jesus saw a teachable moment, and he capitalized on it, because at this point, a circus atmosphere had developed around Jesus. He was like a traveling sideshow that attracted all sorts of gawkers and looky-loos who were hanging around waiting to see his newest magic tricks. Like, hey, step right up, come on over here, let's see, here's the popcorn, here's the, right, let's watch Jesus do his tricks. And so he's confronting them right now about the sinful pattern throughout their history as Jews of demanding miracles before they would believe. And we know all you have to do is look back at the Old Testament and time and time and time and time again, the nation of Israel tested God. And they, they, they expected him to do all these miracles. And, 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 and despite all the miracles and all the signs and wonders that he continually performed for them to deliver them and rescue them, it was never enough. And they still rebelled against him. And so it displeased and it angered the Lord because their focus was not on him but on his hand. It wasn't on his face, right? It was on his hand. You've heard that expressed before. What, what kind of relationship do you have? Do you relate to God's face or do you relate to God's hand? Right? Look, relating to God's face, right? Seeking God's face is seeking a relationship with him because of who he is. Seeking God's hand is, is, is pursuing a relationship with God for what he can do for you. And it seemed that they were constantly seeking God's hand rather than his face. They didn't care about who he was but what he could do for them. And so what he's saying here is that faith that is merely based on signs and wonders is selfish and shallow. In fact, miracles can't even produce faith. The ultimate miracle that Jesus performed or that God performed was raising Jesus from the dead. And did everybody in Jerusalem fall down on their face and repent of their rejection of Jesus as Messiah and embrace him as their Lord and Savior? Did, did they do that after he rose from the dead and appeared 
No, he didn't. They didn't. So even the greatest miracle God could have possibly done, right, happened, and the people still didn't believe. So miracles don't produce faith, but they stimulate faith. They encourage faith. And I think we need to understand that the goal of signs and wonders in Jesus' day was to confirm that he was really who he said he was, God's son, so that people would place their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. Same thing with the apostles. God, Jesus gave the, the, the apostles, his disciples, the ability to do signs and wonders and miracles. Why? To confirm that they were his spokesmen. These were the people that you should listen to. They're speaking the word of God as opposed to everybody else out here who's speaking the word of God, right? Listen to these guys. And so he gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders. Now, what's different about today? Well, why shouldn't we be coming to church and expecting signs and wonders? And why don't you, why, why don't you have to come here? Why, why don't you have to, uh, how am I trying to say this? Why, why don't you have to come here, right, and, and, and be waiting for me to come up, bring somebody up here and bop them on the head and heal them from something and perform some sign and wonder in your presence? Why don't you have to do that? Why don't you have to look forward to that? Because you can bring your Bible. You brought your Bible today. That's all you need. You don't have a sign and a wonder. You got the, the Word of God. And they didn't have the Word of God back then, so they didn't know. There was no standard, right, to test the, the preachers and the speakers and the spokesmen for God. And so now you have all you need. And so while God could do anything He wants today, He could perform a sign and a wonder. He can do miracles anytime He wants. Amen? But I don't think that's the norm, particularly in our society where we, we have the, the Word of God. Now, we do see in, in other parts of the body of Christ and other parts of the world where, where maybe there's some intense uh, spiritual warfare going on, maybe in some Muslim countries and, and other uh, more... Uh, um, animalistic uh, countries where there's the witch doctors and the voodoo and all that kind of stuff, sometimes you see more signs and wonders because it's like the spirit realm was even more on the surface, right, than it is here. And so the point here is that what Jesus was saying is he, he just wanted them to go beyond seeking signs and wonders to believing in him and obeying his word. They weren't there yet. They had this level one faith if you will, and they were just, it was just based on signs and, and, and wonders, on miracles. It wasn't true saving faith. Well, let's look at level two faith. Level two faith is based on Jesus' words. It's based on Jesus' words. And notice verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Again, what Jesus said did not daunt <clears throat> this royal official. It wasn't like, oh, you hurt my feelings, you know? Oh, maybe I shouldn't ask anymore. I think this is other, another evidence that he, he, he didn't take this statement personally. He knew Jesus was talking to the multitudes, and this guy, he was just like, hey, would you still come? I, I, the, the, the issue's still at hand. My son's dying. Would you still come? And even though the, the nobleman's faith was deficient at first, Jesus had mercy on him and graciously responded to the measure of faith he did have at the time that had motivated him to come all the way from Capernaum to ask him to heal his son. And I think this is a great encouragement to us that when we exercise the faith we do have, albeit 
insufficient faith, right? The Lord graciously gives us more faith. Don't ever be embarrassed to come to the Lord and say, Lord, uh, help my unbelief, right? Lord, grant me faith. But while Jesus responded graciously to the measure of this man's faith, he, he, didn't, he wasn't content to leave the man at that level of faith that he did have. He wanted to stretch his faith and develop his faith and grow this man's faith. So he told him to go back home because his son was healed from his terminal condition. Notice he says in verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. <clears throat> so he gave him no sign, no miracle per se, nothing visible, nothing tangible. He simply gave the man his word. That's all this guy had to go on was Jesus' word. I mean, being there when someone is healed requires little faith because you're watching this thing take place, right? It takes a whole lot more faith to believe someone is healed without being there. And basically what Jesus said to him is, go, your son lives. Basically, your son's healed. And notice what it says. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. That's a different level of faith right there than what he came with. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Without any visible proof, the man simply took Jesus at his word and headed for home. Some commentators point out that because he got back the next day and it wasn't necessarily, excuse me, got back the next day and, and he could have just immediately jumped on his horse and galloped back home, right? Maybe four or five hour journey. Um, the fact that he, that he didn't do that, it means that maybe he, he even lingered a while. Maybe he hung around and wanted to hear more of Jesus and what Jesus had to say. In other words, demonstrating his faith that he didn't have to go, okay, boom, he's gone. Right? He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so what else you got for me? What else can I learn from you while I'm here, right? And that's how strong his faith was at this point. And you say, well, what, think about this. I mean, if he went back and his son, he got there and his son wasn't healed, then it'd be too late to travel back to appeal to Christ a second time. I mean, there was no time for a second appeal. It was now or never, Right? I mean, so this guy was really believing Jesus at this point with nothing to hold on to but the promise that Jesus made to him that his son would live. The man returned in anticipation of finding his son alive and well. There was no question in his mind. Yeah, I don't think he went back. I don't think he raced back worrying the whole time, anxious and fretting and wringing his hands going, oh, I sure hope this is, oh, I sure hope this is true. I, God had taken him to the next level of faith. One commentator said this, it's characteristic of man that he wants to see before he believes. But Jesus teaches us that we should first believe and then we will see. This man didn't have to see to believe. He believed before he saw. And we have that expression, right, in in our culture. Seeing is what? Believing. But the scripture teaches the exact opposite, that believing is seeing. 
Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, for, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 11, this is probably the premier uh, passage in, in all of the New Testament about faith. This is what we call the Hall of Faith, where uh, the writer of Hebrews lists all of these great Old Testament saints who lived by faith. In other words, they, according to verse 13... All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed them that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, they lived their life based on promises that were made for the future that they never experienced themselves. By faith, Abel did this. By faith, Enoch did this. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Sarah did this. By faith, Jacob and Joseph and Isaac and Moses did this. You say, well, what is faith? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not, what? Seen. That's faith. It's being absolutely convinced of things that you do not see, that you have not seen. It's like the message last week, right? 1 Peter chapter uh, 1, verse 9, having not seen him, Jesus, right? You what? You love him. That's true faith. And then look at verse 6, Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And see, most people run around saying, well, until I understand, I'm not going to believe. And the Bible says, no, you need to believe first, and then you'll understand, right? God is more honored when we believe something simply because he said it than because he gives some visible proof. Again, Peter said that last week, how much more blessed we are, right? Uh, Blessed is the one who believes and hasn't seen, right? That was Jesus' words to doubting Thomas. Well, there's a third level of faith, and this is where we want to get to, not only in our text, in the text today, but in our lives. Level three faith is simply based on Jesus. It's simply based on Jesus. Look at verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. And so he inquired of them the hour when he had began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. So here's this guy going back home, probably taking his time, right? No need to rush, no need to fret, right? Total confidence that what Jesus said was true. His son was alive and his servants met him. Sure enough, right? His servants met him on the way with the joyous news that his son had fully recovered. And so he immediately inquired about the exact time. Now, now tell me, when was it? Uh, I got to know, when was it? When was the exact time when his fever broke? And sure enough, just as he had expected, it was the very moment when Jesus had told him his son would live. And the point of this whole, I think, sign is this, that by providing this man's son physical healing, Jesus was preparing the soil of this father's desperate heart 
so he could eventually provide spiritual healing to him and his entire family. And notice what it says at the verse 53. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And at that moment, it's a, that's the, 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 uh, the sense that we're supposed to get. And at that moment, or when he got home, he himself believed and his whole household. In other words, his faith had progressed from believing that Jesus was just this miracle worker who could heal his son, his sick son, to now believing that he was the promised Messiah who had come to save him and his whole family from their sin. And his faith was so contagious at this point, right? He gets home. He can hardly contain himself, right? Let me tell you what happened. I know Johnny's all better, but let me tell you how it happened. And guess, guess what this means? This, what this means to me is that this guy is not just a miracle work. He's the Messiah. He's our Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. And his whole family believed. He led his family to Christ. And this was not the only household that we know of in the Scriptures who came to faith in Christ all at the same time. There was Cornelius's household in Acts 11. There was Lydia's household in Acts 16. There was the Philippian jailer's household in Acts 16. There was Crispus and his household in Acts 18. And there was Stephanus's household in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 16. He himself believed in his whole household. Now, Jesus did say that he came to divide marriages and families. You're familiar with that reference in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34? Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He went on to say, if any man loves father or mother more than me, is not what? Worthy of me. And so we have that aspect of the ministry of Jesus. However, I believe that God desires couples and families to be united in Christ and to be able to spend eternity together in heaven. God doesn't take any pleasure in seeing one spouse go to heaven and the other go to hell. God takes no pleasure in in, in a brother going to heaven and his sister going to hell. God has no pleasure in a parent going to heaven and their children going to hell. God takes no pleasure in a child going to heaven and their parents going to hell. Listen, if you're married to a believer, God wants you to be a believer too. So you can spend eternity in heaven with your spouse. Not that you'll be married. We know that's not going to be the case, but I believe that's God's heart. Doesn't mean it's his will, right? His, his ordained will, we don't know that, but we know God's heart. Homer Kent, in commenting on this phrase, he himself believed in his whole household, says the sense is that they became believers and followers of Jesus. Henceforth, they would not need miracles, not even statements from Jesus on every matter. They could just trust Jesus himself. Such a faith looks to Christ for guidance, accepts without question everything our Lord has revealed, and leaves to him 
those things which we do not understand. It's a great description of true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, does that describe the kind of faith you have in Jesus? Has your faith progressed beyond a shallow belief in Jesus? Is Jesus more to you than just someone who's there to solve all your problems and to relieve all your pressures? See, our faith must develop and grow beyond the foxhole, beyond the crisis, to a daily, abiding, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes made this comment. He said, we all have problems and pressures, but if our lives are worried, frenetic, breathless, in other words, we go through like going, (laughs) right? We have probably not learned to believe God's word to us. Each one of us has opportunities to grow in faith as we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. In those trials, if we will turn to the word of God, it will speak to us, and if we believe and act upon it, we will grow in faith. By God's grace, our foxhole faith can grow and develop into an unfeigned faith, a a real, genuine faith that will ultimately grow and develop into an infectious faith, the kind of faith that sets an example to those around us and leads others to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this story of the nobleman's son that is so rich in, 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 in meaning and application for our lives. And Lord, we thank you that ultimately this sign Uh, was intended to put on display the glory of Christ. And Lord, I pray that uh, we would walk away just just enjoying and, and rejoicing in the glorious nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus today. And Lord, that that would inspire greater faith in Him. And Lord, that our faith would inspire others to believe in Him as well. Lord, that we would have, we would be contagious Christians that people would see us in all sorts of difficulties and dealing with the problems and the pressures of life that everyone has to deal with, but we're dealing with it in a different way. And they would want to know why. How can we do this? It doesn't make any sense to them how we can be at at rest and at peace and have hope in the midst of the the grief and pain of life. And Lord, that that we would have the privilege of sharing Christ with them and they would come to believe and to live as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.